I'm Ruth Sturkey. Welcome to Money Expresso, no-fob conversations exploring money and life. People are often inhibited when it comes to talking about money. I'd like to change that. I'm going to be speaking with guests from all walks of life and asking them to share their personal story and the influence that money has had on the decisions that they've made. I'm also going to be delving into some of those tricky money and life questions, asking what do people like me do when? My hope is that the shared experience of our guests will get the UK talking about money and help others make better money decisions. My guest today is Barry Horner. Barry is the Chief Executive of Paradigm Norton, a firm that he founded almost 20 years to the day. Paradigm Norton is now a firm of over 80 people with offices across the Southwest and in London. PN is seen as one of the leaders in UK financial planning, and that was recognised last year by them being awarded Chartered Financial Planning Firm of the Year by the Chartered Insurance Institute. Paradigm Norton are an employee-owned business, which means that their future is in their own hands. They're also a B Corp. Now, a B Corp, uh, for those who are not so familiar, is a company that believes in doing business on purpose and is legally obliged to consider the impact of its decisions on not just making a profit, but on its people, its community, the environment and, and, the, and the world at large. Outside of Paradigm Norton, Barry was a board member and president of the Institute of Financial Planning, and he also chaired the US-based Financial Planning Standard Boards, an organization that seeks to improve financial planning standards globally. He's a regular speaker at financial planning events, both in the UK and overseas. When he's not working, you're probably gonna find him up in the Lake District with his wife, Bev, his three sons and his three dogs. Oh, unless of course it's the skiing season when you'll find him on the slopes in Chamonix. Barry, I'm delighted that you can join me today. Um, how are you? Great, thanks Ruth and lovely to be here and be able to contribute to this podcast. I've been really excited about it. That's, that's really good. And uh, you know, I think it's really important that if we're running a podcast that we're also comfortable that um, people like you, our, our CEO, uh, um, are, are happy to, to talk, a little bit, talk a little bit about their money stories. So um, I'm sure we'll talk more about Paradigm Norton um, and how it's influenced you uh, over, over time as, as we go through the podcast. But hmm. I'd like to take you back, if I may, to your childhood. Sure. Um, where did you grow up and what's your earliest memories of money as a, as a, as a kid? Yeah, well, I grew up in grew up in Yorkshire in Leeds. So I was I'm a I'm a Yorkshire lad, born and bred, and then went to Sheffield University. So I didn't move too far away from where I um, where I was born. I guess in terms of early money memories, my my dad was a partner in an architect's practice, um, and at that time I think they were doing well. Property was booming, and so I guess I have two sort of recollections really. One was seeing how my parents spent their money. And I do think that's influenced how, you know, we do a lot of holidays with my three boys. And I think that was largely because I spent a lot of time holidaying with my parents and really enjoyed it. So on the one hand, I saw my parents, um, I never knew how much they earned, but I, I assumed that they did pretty well. We used to go to Ibiza twice a year, which again, it, in those days, Ibiza was an undiscovered island, so we could go on one of the big beaches and there'd be nobody there. So on the, on the one hand, I had this perspective of feeling that money wasn't um, in a sort of scarce commodity as I grew up. But at the same time, it was also quite a taboo subject. 
So I remember once asking my dad how much he earned and and the reaction I just to remember to this day, you know, I think that I think mum and dad find it found it much easier talking about the birds and the bees with me than they did talking about money. And it was like, how could you possibly ask such an unreasonable question? So, and that's really, you know, the fact that I, I can just still to this day recall that uh, has stuck with me. So on the one hand, I saw my parents with a reasonable amount of money could do what they wanted to do. But there was always, and I think it's a good thing, a, an acceptance that I had to earn my own money and, and none of it was going to come my way. Uh, and so I did paper rounds. I was always, I guess, a bit entrepreneurial. So I can remember once selling conkers to my friends and they would go, well, we could just get those from a tree. <laughs> but I somehow managed to get beautiful conkers that, you know, were soaked in vinegar and all the things you did when you were a boy and managed to sell them and <laughs> sell magazines that I'd read. So there was always that sort of, that's where I started in terms of, um, yeah, a bit of an entrepreneurial flair. Then, then I went to university and, and did business and accounting, which was obviously then led to eventually how I did, did Paradigm Norton. So yeah, a couple of memories really that go back to my early days where um, parents had plenty but didn't want to give it to their kids, uh, but also a sort of way of thinking of um, son needs to go out into the world and, and earn. And that's mm. exactly what I did. So I started off doing things like paper rounds, um, moved to then, uh, worked in a supermarket. Remember, I've still got my contract actually. Um, as I was thinking about this um, podcast, 13 pence an hour is what, <laughs> I, is what I earned. And I've still I've still kept it. I love things like that. And, and also I've kept my uh, post office savings book. So whenever I used to get some money, I always used to apportion it. And I've still got that in my little box of treasures. I've still got my post office savings book from, that must be from, so I was born in 1960 from about age 10. So yeah, interesting oh. memories. You really evoked some memories with, with me as well, Barry, in terms of post office savings books, conkers, that was my brother's trick, and um, working in the supermarket. I can't remember what my hourly rate was, but I'm sure it wasn't much more, much more than that. Yeah. Um, so you, um, you, you've mentioned it a little bit there. So when you earned money as a boy on your paper round or conkers or whatever mm. other things you could sell, how did you decide what you were going to spend and what was going to go into that post office book? I think probably to start with, it was it was, most of it was spent, to be honest. So I used to I used to enjoy buying records at that time, mm. vinyl. So um, whenever Can I you could remember your first vinyl, Barry. Uh, probably Virginia Plain Roxy Music. Oh, brilliant song! Yeah, about nineteen seventy one, two, I would imagine. So I was about twelve at the time. So. Mm. Yeah, so, um, and then I guess you get to the point where you start to have, I mean, it's all relative, isn't it? But enough to be able to do a few things that you wanted to do and thought actually it would be quite useful to be able to sort of save some money for a rainy day. I actually just used to enjoy walking up to the post office, which was only about 200 yards up the road and depositing some. And then next time I'd go in, I'd get this little, uh, I'd get some stamps in my book and they'd show me that I'd, I've been given some money, which of course was interest in those days. And I was thinking for, for doing absolutely nothing other than me giving you my money, you've now given me some back. And so, yeah, I guess, you know, then to university, did economics and business, you realise the power of compound interest and all of that good stuff that we, we talk about professionally. 
Um, so yeah, it would be absolutely spending to start with, but there was something in me that wanted to save money as well. And then I don't know where this came from, but it may be seeing my parents do it. I've always been, I've always wanted to support charities. So again, even at an early stage was, stage was probably really then piggybacking off what my parents were doing. But certainly latterly, um, I've very much got involved with all sorts of charities, um, both in terms of giving financially, but also getting very much involved in them. So I've chaired three different charities over periods of time. So I always saw a sort of enjoy myself and take spend the money that I wanted to do, but also put a little bit into a savings and also give a bit away. And interestingly, it's something I've encouraged my boys to do. So even from the start, when my eldest got his first job, one of the first conversations I had with him was, well, how are you going to spend your first pay packet? And it was like, well, of course, I'm going to spend it. And, and actually, I did manage to persuade him to make a pension contribution with the proportion of his first year's pay, which I thought was a good achievement. So, yeah. and again, they're they're keen to, you know, in a in a moderate way, give back to charity as well. So, I've, hopefully, that sort of bit of legacy there has been passed on. All those um, deep seated roots are really interesting, aren't they? About you know, we so often mirror what we see going on around us as we yeah. were we were growing up and it, it does yeah. sound like your your parents um instilled some really good virtues in in you and yeah, models and great behaviors yeah definitely i think that the bit that i regret was the fact that when i asked my dad about money that i think i think they could have been more open it was more me observing them yeah and what they did rather than them coaching teaching mentoring me and I think there is a role to be played there so mm. in getting a reaction like that also led me to think actually money is a real no-no a real taboo and something you don't really want to talk about yeah, whereas yeah. again the thing I've tried to do with my boys is have a very open conversation with them a very open dialogue I mean they know what I earn mm -hmm. I, I've never been I've never thought, well, why wouldn't they need to know that? I mean, it needs to be set in context. But at the same time, I guess I sort of wrote back slightly on the way I was brought up, which, which was there were some principles that I could follow if I wanted to, but it would have been so much nicer if they'd have sat down and explained to me um, how they allocated their resources. So, mm -hmm. how, you know, that sort of just in very simple terms, how did they split money between spending, saving and um, giving? Because essentially, you know, as we know, as financial planners, there's no sort of independent financial decision. You can only you can only do, you know, you can only spend the same pound once, essentially. You know, so how do you do that? So, yeah, I think my, my, I, you know, I look back on a very happy childhood, lots of holidays and lots of good stuff. But equally, I think and, it, and it's probably not dissimilar now. There's there's so little financial education available for people in terms of just basics on budgeting and what's the difference between a debit card and a credit card and what's an APR and all of that stuff. So I probably went away to university quite naive in terms of how to, how to handle money, albeit I had seen my parents sort of divvy up what they had in, in three different directions. I think um, what you mentioned there about money being a bit of a taboo in the, uh, the Horner, Horner household when you were growing up, it leads into a really big question that, you know, I, that I, you know, why is it that people don't talk about money? What is that rooted in? I yeah, think it's quite okay. an interesting comment. It, it really is. And when you think about money sort of 
at its most basic level, it's its unit of exchange, isn't it? You think back to how have we got to where we have got to now? It was, I had some goats and you had some chickens, so let's exchange them. And now you look at money and money has a real, well, I guess it's, you know, it's almost back to the question of when you meet someone, it's what do you do? What do, you do? Mm. And, and behind that question is I, I need to be able to work out where you fit into the into the hierarchy mm. so oh you're a lawyer that that means you're wealthy and you've got money or you're a bus driver and you're of more modest means so I think money money does have a power mm-hmm. and and those with it and you then you know you look at people that have won the lottery suddenly they realize they've got lots of new friends that they never knew they had yeah. and then equally at the other end of the scale you've got people who don't have money and there's all sorts of fear and anxiety and mm. Even looking at the stats, I remember uh, so I used to chair Bristol Debt Advice Centre for a while, and it was astounding the people that would come to us, you know, professionals with very good incomes with £200,000 on credit cards and those sorts of things. Because I guess there is that element of wanting to keep up with the Joneses, and that's where the sort of the bad side of money, I think, mm-hmm. comes in when you're trying to do that. So I guess philosophically, I take the view that money is purely there to enable you to achieve your your goals it's it's not it's not something to be bragged about or I also remember um a client that I took on very early in the very early days of, of being a financial planner and he and he said to me he was a chartered accountant and he said my my one goal in life is to be a millionaire and as I unpacked that a bit I thought what was the rationale behind that and actually there wasn't one at all it was purely a status thing and I just mm-hmm. thought what an unbelievably shallow goal to have if that's what you know you're trying to achieve and yet over time I've also come across clients more recently where one particular client I can think of where his goal was to give over a million pounds away to charity and again just two very different views of money at two real extremes one was all about accruing it for themselves and the other was all about being very light-handed with money and letting it go and so yeah I, I think the whole subject of money and the sort of grip and power it has over people is a really fascinating subject and I guess as we know from being um, financial planners for many years you know there are some I think of my father-in-law for example who was um, you know, he had a good job and stuff but he'd been brought up through the war years his whole mantra when it came to money was thrift mm. so so he could never spend money on himself on himself he, he loved cars he loved he said oh I'd always love a BMW and yet when he passed away and my mother-in-law too, they could have easily afforded that. But there was this just mentality. It's like wealthy people drive BMWs, not people like me. It, it's, yeah, it is really fascinating. It really is, isn't it? And I think um, you, some of these things are so deep-rooted, aren't they? You know, they as you say, your father-in-law, it was maybe from the war years. Yeah. But we've all got things. I, you know, I can, I can remember, um, you, you know, a, a time when I felt guilty when I started to earn some more money because my grandma had very little and, you know, could make a state pension go an awfully long way. And I felt very humble about that. And, um, and somebody kind of caused me to unlock that thinking by, by saying, you know, it's, it's good to remember your grandma and her, her, her thriftiness, I suppose. Yeah. But is that memory serving you now? And, and I, you know, and I think that's it. It's good. We're not that highly evolved, really, are we? You know, we, we no. learn things when we're young and we carry them with us. It's, yeah. Um, 
Because yeah. with the, my father-in-law, there was nothing you could do to adjust that. I mean, he'd he'd buy a few golf clubs now and again, but it was so deeply ingrained that view of maybe you know the wartime thing. He'd been through rationing and everything. Mm. There was just no ability to be free, and and that then led into being quite miserly in terms of money, where mum-in-law again almost had to ask for money when it was needed it was quite an unhealthy yeah. in my view view of money and yeah. and you do see that with um I can remember an, another client where you know we were looking after significant wealth to for them and I said oh do you go out there's there was somewhere locally that I won't particularly mention you, you must enjoy going out there and they said oh that's for the wealthy people and yet I was thinking I know how much you and they said, well, the only time we would feel wealthy is if you brought it all in notes and put it all out on the table. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, different, different people's views is, mm. is absolutely fascinating. Oh, gosh, yes. so, many, so many thoughts going, going through my head around that. And the one thing that you've mentioned that, um, by mentioning your father-in-law and your mother-in-law, um, how do you and um, Bev, your wife, talk about money do do you delegate roles or we we are unbelievably traditional in our (laughs) relationship we're very blue and very pink in terms of what what we do so I guess as a financial planner um there would be a sort of natural assumption that I would do that so I guess yeah I mean we've been married 40 years but we do we do have very traditional roles so I tend to oversee the finances I try and again learning from seeing my father-in-law I've just mentioned I would hate for Bev to feel that she almost has to come to me for money that's absolutely not how we do it Mm. in terms of sort of setting the budget we do have meetings where we get together and just sort of talk about the plan for the year and we try and do it in a much more intentional way but definitely I'm the one that um, tends to do with bank transfers and the money side of things Mm. Uh, but you know often we, we do a lot of walking not dog walking up here in the lakes and we do have conversations around how do we want to apportion things? Are we giving enough? Are we giving to the right types of charities and things? So yeah, we do we do have those conversations. But when it comes to the actual yeah payments and money in, money out, doing the budget, sorting direct debits out, it tends to fall to me. Once an accountant, always accountant. Hey, Barry. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Good. I don't blame Bev at all. Um, and um, you you mentioned. Um, charity and that you've um, given your time to charity and that you've also given money to charity um, and I, I, that, for me that is a really interesting I'm, I'm one of those charity givers that um, I'll if people ask me for a donation I'll, I will always say yes um, and I guess that means I'm not a particularly strategic giver um, and it's probably something I should do is actually really sit down and work out the things that are particularly meaningful to me. Is that an exercise that, that you've been through and you're very clear about the causes that you would like to help or is, is it a bit more sporadic? Yeah, I think it is quite strategic. I mean, again, in the past, clients have said we'd like to be more intentional about giving. And I've often said if you get involved in doing something, automatically you become a very intentional giver. So um I chaired Bristol Debt Advice Centre for 14 years and suddenly you see some people in dire straits and at the time when I started to chair that organisation it was I mean the main role I had as the chair of the trustees was helping the team which was very small cope with the 
challenges of almost having to potentially make them redundant all the time because the there just wasn't the money there to be able to sustain the organization and it wasn't after, it was about after about five years we got lottery funding and suddenly that made meant that that organization was much more stable and it wasn't firefighting for the whole time mm-hmm. and I probably I don't think anybody should stay on a board for 14 years but I, I, you know, I was involved in that, but also then gave to that. I then subsequently got involved with another organization that was a microfinance charity called DECI that we've supported through Paradigm Norton and was involved in that organization probably for five or six years. And again, you just see the, you see the work that goes on in these organizations and you just get drawn in. If you're a trustee and you're regularly meeting together as trustees, maybe monthly or quarterly, and you're just hearing the plight of so many people who are in such a different situation to where you are it just causes us to sort of put our hands in our pockets so and then more recently I've got involved with a charity um, that deals with or helps um, ex-child soldiers in Uganda a charity called Third Hope where again I'm also a trustee but also a giver there so we have we have tried to be quite strategic in what we've done and rather than it being a bit of a scattergun in terms of how we've given money We've tried to be much more intentional, and but also it's that combination of trying to get involved, see where the real need is, and then that also helps me to apportion our giving pot, um, so to speak. And and I think also every charity has its time. Um, so actually, Third Hope is the one I'm really more involved with, and a, and and probably the most significant part of our giving is allocated there. Mm-hmm. And then also we sort of earmark a certain amount that may just come up from time to time. So. On the one hand, being as strategic as we can, but also uh, from time to time, just responding to needs as they arise. So that's typically how we've done it. And again, we've both chatted it through and feel comfortable, making sure we feel comfortable with how money is being allocated. Yeah. You've got, you mentioned you've got three boys mm. and um, I think they're all in their 20s now. Is that is that right? Yeah. One of them who gets married in the summer is 30, 31. There this okay. Year. So, okay. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, Late congratulations. 20s. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, family wedding coming up. That's going to be fun. Hopefully yeah. post-COVID. Um, yeah. I always think when I think about my brother and I, um, apart from the obvious differences in him being a, a, a boy and me being a girl, um, we're so different around money. How did that play out with three boys? definitely you know I don't think it's a gender thing either so to to think that hopefully I've brought them up in exactly the same way the same principles the same time allocated the same conversations they are chalk and cheese so I mean to an extent I think they've all been pretty good around money yeah um but one in particular is just uh, an absolute saver and would always try and you know in the other two at the extremes, the youngest and the oldest one are into, well, the younger one more clothes. The older one is very much like me. So in terms of where I spend money, it tends to be outdoor walking gear. So if I have a week, <laughs> it will be buy something good. And yeah. certainly Zach's at that end of the spectrum. Yeah. Gideon, the one that sits in the middle, has always been, what's the matter with a charity shop? I mean, I've never shopped in a charity shop in my life. So where's that come from? Yeah. Which, which is brilliant because then, you know, he's not going buying mega expensive stuff that we know probably never lasts as you yeah. know too long anyway. So, yeah, it's really interesting that with all, all of them being not dissimilar ages, mm. they all have had have dealt with money in quite different ways. But yeah. at the same time, I guess, as three sons of a financial planner, 
do have some understanding of budgeting and money and how resources should be allocated. But, you know, they're all in that early, very early stages of their careers at the mm-hmm. moment. So where they can give, it's it's more modest because mm-hmm. they're all sort of thinking about saving for the future and house mm-hmm. purchases and things down the line. Yeah, of course. You mentioned you've got a weakness around, I think you were going to say outdoor clothing. Is that, is that yeah. right? Yeah. Um, uh, one of my questions that I love to ask is kind of, you know, what's your guilty money secret? Would, would that be, out, uh, you know, some good outdoor wear or is there something else? Yeah, I guess it would be. So I, I don't really see myself much as a spender, to be honest. Mm. Um, you know, when I look at our online banking, the stuff that goes through is typically not me. It's, it's um, you know, the costs of living. It's it's We do a bit of eating out and that sort of thing. But I guess on a small scale, it would be coffee. So yeah, yeah. there's nothing like a good a good espresso, as we're on money espresso <laughs> podcast. Um, and yeah, and then I think probably in terms of more expensive stuff, and it does get then quite expensive. It would be, you know, I bought Arcteryx um, shells and and walking gear that are four hundred quid. Yeah, but at the yeah. same time, I take the view that that's probably going to last me a long time. You know, once I've bought a decent piece of kit, I really look after it and mm-hmm. keep it. And it's a bit like walking boots. You know, you can you spend a reasonable amount of money on a pair of walking boots, and they last you ten years. So. Definitely coffee, outdoor walking stuff, skis. Yeah. So, yeah. But one one likes a nice pair of skis. And of course, you can't just have one pair because it depends. My my eldest son, Zach, is a ski instructor. So the three boys are phenomenal skiers. So when I go out with them, it's not dad tries to keep up. But uh, yeah, are we on piste one day? Are we off piste the next? So yeah, a bit of money has been invested in, yeah. in skis. And then probably holidays as well has been a big thing for us. So I guess, I, again, I saw the fun and and lovely sort of, I do see holidays as actually an investment in, mm. in the boys. So mm. every year we've, we go away together. Bev isn't a massive um, traveller, doesn't enjoy flying, but again, has been brilliant in um, allowing us to do stuff together, which, is, which has been really great. So we always do a ski trip, usually this time of year. So actually the, the week today we're recording is usually our ski week in, in normal times. <laughs> We'll normally try and sneak in an F1 some, somewhere through the year. So we're talking about possibly Monza this year, going to mm-hmm. Italy, depending on COVID. And then we do a walking week in Chamonix at the end of the year. So I guess, you know, that's an allocation mm-hmm. of resources for us. It's, some yeah. of these things don't come cheap. But the fact that the boys still enjoy going away with me, I enjoy spending time with them and hanging out with them. So, yeah, those are a few of the things that, that do see some money, you know, go out of the bank account. But at the same time, there isn't a lot of sort of other spending that goes on. And that plays into that debate that you often hear about, you know, is it things or is it experiences? And there's a little bit of both there, isn't it? But I think the emphasis on um, enabling experience. Yeah, definitely. And I think, I mean, this last 12 months has been really interesting, I think. And I think for many people has caused them to really think what's important so, you know, none of us have had really, I guess, other than Amazon, the capacity to spend perhaps in a way that we ordinarily would. But some of the lovely times that we've had up here have been no cost stuff together. And I guess also there's um, this little place up in Ambleside that's open. There's a really nice little coffee shop that does takeaway coffee and and those sorts of things. And it's been those, those simple things that in normal life you absolutely take for granted yeah. that actually have become really special. And you realise that, 
yeah, it's it's just been times around a supper table over a really nice meal that's that's really valuable and and what life's all about, not going out, you know, getting the next best thing or upgrading mm-hmm. car or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. So I suspect there'll be some interesting money lessons learned mm-hmm. through the last 12 months as we've just all been forced to live in a different way. And would you say, Barry, what you've just described there, which um, is in essence spending time with people that you love and care about, eating good food, drinking good coffee, maybe being in the countryside or in a beautiful place. Is that how you would define wealth for you? Yeah, I guess it is really. I guess, I mean, again, it's a bit bit like back to money. Mm. You think money essentially is a unit of exchange. And when we think about wealth, we often think, I guess, as financial planners of somebody's net worth statement, you know, mm. that, that that's the sum of their wealth, you aggregate all the assets, take away the liabilities, and that's how wealthy they are. But if, if I'd been asked a question that was more around how do you f- define true wealth, mm. which actually, I think is, I know, this isn't a sales pitch for Paradigm Norton at all. But it's sort of why I wanted to build Paradigm Norton in the first place, because I think money to my mind is there to enable you to achieve all the things that you want to do in your life you can't take it with you you know I've seen now four parents and in-laws pass away and you realize you know you go and sort through their house and there's a few old ragged possessions that essentially just go away in a tip almost it's about what you can build into the lives of others certainly for me that's the case so for me true wealth is more around yeah imparting wisdom to the boys spending quality time with them doing stuff with others doing stuff with charities um i guess you know we again we spend a lot of time as financial planners talking about legacy but for me that's really important mm-hmm. and uh, having just turned 60 i i sort of taken the view what might i be able to achieve in the next decade more so than in the past decade but for me that will be it won't be about financial goals it'll be about influencing impacting the lives of others so that's what I think is true wealth it's leaving that legacy that when you go you've just been able to help and impart some good stuff maybe even in some respects financially support others and just yeah leave the world a better place by virtue of what you've been able to do so that would for me is about wealthy and that's you know that's the message that we want to send to our clients I think it's Mm -hmm. it's it's that combination of money and life but it's nothing to do with wealth accumulation for the sake of it it's about being really clear. I think sometimes, you know, in terms of goals, we can think of exotic goals, but sometimes they can be very modest, but people just don't get around to doing them. So if we as a business can help people better identify what a life well lived looks like, and then marry that up with their money, and it could be, it could be downsizing, it could be, um, one of the things I follow on um, Instagram is tiny house and it's people have just sought to live a completely different life downsize downscale live much more modestly but um yeah watching some of the Ben Fogel programs of new lives in the wild there are times when I think yeah great you know you're just seeing people live life to the max and it's you know they've jumped out the rat race and they're doing exactly what they want to do and I think great on you you know Mm, absolutely gosh yeah um, who's been the greatest influence on you and your career, Barry? I guess a variety of people. Um, 
You know, my parents certainly were influential. Not necessarily, I know our podcast and our lot of thinking today is around money. And I wouldn't say, and there was the model I talked about earlier, but they were absolutely there for me. Uh, they'd encourage me. They'd, they'd always want to know about what I was up to. Um, I absolutely got unconditional love from them. Uh, everything I did was totally amazing. So that, that's the background I have. And I think, you know, there's no doubt I am who I am because of them. Mm. I think at the same time, you know, my parents passed away quite a long time ago. My father had ill health, so he's, he's not been around for a long time. I guess in terms of the other person, it, it has to be Bev. You know, we've been married for four, yeah, 40 years, went dated for six. Gosh. And um, no, that's not quite right. That makes me far too, uh, that's not quite right. <laughs> dated for six, married for 37. So okay. yeah, yeah, and I think she's always been there. Um, we're quite different. So, mm-hmm. and again, I think that's been really good mm-hmm. in that we've sort of smoothed each other off along the way. Um, but she's always been hugely supportive. I remember in my early career, I had the opportunity of becoming a self-employed financial planner on, a, on almost no income or joining at the time Harvey Nichols as an audit manager on a very good salary and a, and a car. And equally, it would have been very easy to have gone with that. And, mm-hmm. and Beth said, look, you know, go and do the self-employed thing, see what financial planning is like. If you don't like it, you can always then go and join a big corporate and there's been lots of things like that. You know, she, when I was training to do my accountancy back to um, still got my contract for that, 3,400 a year, I got paid for being an accountant. Um, and again, you know, that, that was not a lot in those days. She was a radiographer and, and she provided the income really that we needed to sort of get through that. So, yeah, I think she's the, probably the person that's been, that, you know, and there's been lots of other people along the way, yeah. I think. You know, the Norton bit of Paradigm Norton, I got to know David Norton very well. Mm. Um, interestingly, most people think that's through the world of financial planning, but I actually knew his wife, Julia, going back to Bristol Debt Advice Centre. Julia, David's wife, was the manager of Bristol Debt Advice Centre. So mm. I was the chair of trustees, so I got to know Julia. But and David was a phenomenal character, as was witnessed when he passed away at age 54. You know, two big services recognizing what he'd done that were sort of at, you know full churches 800 a thousand people in each and you realize mm. the impact he'd made and I guess when I look at financial planning and how I got involved in financial planning David was a, a huge figure who I thought you're just doing something completely different how have you managed to recreate financial planning when you have the old sort of commission-based self-employed mm. model of IFAs and you I guess David was also an accountant so thought to set the business up in quite a different way. Yeah. But um, yeah, David was an important figure for me in terms of just thinking, if you can do it, I can do it. And, and that was sort of, we used to have conversations when we used to meet in Bristol because both firms were based in Bristol where I was very flattered because David used to say to me, oh, Paradigm Capital Management as was at that time, looks very much like Norton Partners. And, and people used to say the same. So it was, you know, when David did pass to pass away and, and we had the opportunity opportunity to bring our two businesses together, it was a bit of a, a great marriage that, you know, has has lasted the test of time. Mm. So, yeah, David would be another person, I think, who would, mm. who would who was quite significant, certainly in my working career. Yeah. I've got so many other questions I could ask you. I'm, I'm kind of conscious of time moving on. Um, you've mentioned your 60. Um, 
we know Paradigm Norton have been going for, for 20 years. Um, a couple of momentous things happened over the last year. We've become an employee-owned and becoming a B corporation. What do you see the next five years or so looking like? And, and how do you see your role developing, changing, evolving over mm. that period? Yeah, so I think the the move to being employee-owned was so the right thing for the firm. You know, one of our values is about building for the long term. And I just couldn't see any visibility or any thought that we could do that were we to just sell out to whoever. And, and you know, we, we, we had lots of offers. So that feels that that's dealt with the ownership succession. We are now, it's very clear, we're employee-owned. Everybody's a partner in the firm. And I think that works really, really well. What that succession planning didn't do, however, is deal with leadership succession. And, and I guess, yeah, you're right. I have been probably quite influential in terms of how the business has been built over 20 years. But I've, I'm also very fortunate that I've got still a lot of energy to continue to do, to build the business and make sure that over, over the next four years or so, as I maybe transition into uh, part-time possibly, that we've got an absolutely fabulous team that are coming through that I can see will be ready by then, but are not now. Mm. So I've historically done quite a lot of coaching and mentoring with young men. I particularly have enjoyed doing that, just helping people sort of find their way in life. So again, the opportunity to just help nudge people along that way, put some processes in place to bring people through and start to identify who those people might be. Um, in a keen on diversity at all levels on the board. Um, gender diversity, ethnicity is really important, but I think generational diversity. Um, I'm a big um, Formula One fan. And uh, for anyone who knows Formula One, they'll absolutely know Max Verstappen, the young guy who's, you know, will be a world champion at some point. But I remember someone saying to him, you know, could you see yourself being a world champion in five years time? He said, I can see myself being a world champion in a year's time. And again, I think in terms of timeframes, um, I'm sort of thinking four years, that will be a great time to sort of coach people through. But also we are working on a, a big project, governance project at the moment that deals with that. So, you know, if I could, in terms of my legacy of Paradigm Norton, it felt to me that whilst the firm started in 2001, David Norton, in some respects, was chapter one. So David started his business in 1980. We took it over in 2000. That was chapter one. It feels like I've been um, leading and spearheading our initiative through chapter two. And I'm really excited to just think what chapter three might look like. And I don't know quite how that's going to unfold at the moment. But just like when we started the journey of um, ownership succession, I had no idea what it meant to be employee owned. And suddenly along that journey, this amazing thing came along and led us to where we were. Similarly, I've every faith in the team and in the business that by the time I'm ready to set down a bit, then a new a new team will have um, emerged. So that would be my hope. I mean, legacy-wise, to think that the business were 80, you know, it could easily be 100 plus by the time I'm ready to sort of hand over. But at the same time, you know, if someone comes in 12 months' time, 24 months' time, I'm not absolutely precious about that. I just want to make sure the business is left in safe hands and you know, I can then sort of watch it from afar and see it continue to flourish under someone else's leadership and direction. That would be my my absolute perfect outcome. 
Uh, yeah, and, and what an outcome and what a journey so far. And I like the way you've broken that down into, you know, we're, we're approaching the third chapter. Um, and it's a, a beautiful um, legacy and reminder of um, the, the input that uh, David Norton and, and indeed yeah. some of his colleagues are still with us today at Paradigm, aren't they? Which is, yeah, yeah, they which are. is, which yeah, is yeah. great. Yeah. Um, we're, we're kind of coming to the end now. And um, you've, you've told us an awful lot about um, what's, how, how your career has been, the, the influence that you've had, your family upbringing, your um, sense of giving back and doing good. And I think that really comes through very strongly with what I observe and know to be the case at, um, at Paradigm Norton. Um, just, just for fun, and I love to ask this question, what's been the best thing that you bought in say the last 12 months for less than 30 pound that's given you the most amount of pleasure? Okay, so I guess, again, it's been a challenge, hasn't it, the last 12 months? Because I guess unless you're looking at Amazon, yeah. <laughs> the shops really haven't been available. But I guess what springs to mind was um, we are very fortunate where we live in the lakes in that we're in the country and there's some absolutely stunning walks. So having been up here for a while now, I started to get back into running. I've always been a bit of a runner, but not done too much. And we have, um, you said three dogs, and unfortunately, we only now have two dogs. That's what happens to dogs eventually. Yeah. Um, with the older one, she really can't do too much these days. She's, um, my wife worked out, she's something like 103 in dog years. Oh but the young one, Flossie, is a black lab, loves to run. And so I bought, um, it's like a extendable lead, but a thing that goes around like a belt. So I can go off running down the lanes and she runs with me and I know I've got her attached to me. So I think that was probably about 30 pounds, but that would, that's made a huge difference. And I've really enjoyed having her with me or if yeah. I've been up on the fells and things doing that. Yeah. Loads of sheep where we are. So whilst ordinarily we can, you know, you could let a dog off. You've just got to be incredibly careful. We're just coming into lambing at the moment. So it's oh. a beautiful time of year. Yeah. yeah. So she runs off with me and I've now got her securely attached to me, but in such a way that I can still run fine. So that's what been a really good gadget. Thing. Love it. Yeah. And I yeah. have to just say, I've got to raise you on the uh, walking boots front. You said, you know, a, walk, a pair of walking boots will last you 10 years. I've just thrown out a pair of old Solomon boots that have got to be... 28 years old really that's pretty good, isn't wow. it? That's, that's and I amazing. do use them uh, let's just yeah. be clear on that yeah 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 <laughs> yeah uh, some people I know you know they, they become like old friends don't yeah. they when you put them on yeah you, know, you do hear people are saying I've just upgraded my walking boots but I'm certainly not sh throwing the other pair out you know it's all the memories and all yeah, of those yeah. things so yeah and Barry before we wrap up um I'd love to know what what money wisdom would you like to pass on to others? I guess it's the message that's the essence of what Paradigm Norton's all about, which is money is purely there for you to achieve your life goals. So spend some time thinking about what's important to you. Think about what your goals and priorities are, and then make sure that you're mapping your finances to, to your goals and plans. So, I mean, that's something that we've learned to do over time, but I don't think it's something that people ordinarily do. And certainly when I became a financial planner, my dad said to me, I would have loved for someone to have done that for me and, and, and never had the opportunity. So, I mean, there's so many things, isn't there, when you think about money, but for me, that's probably the, the key thing. If, if more people lived intentionally, 
where they were able to articulate on their own or with their partners what that perfect life looked like going back to the Ben Fogel thing and then make sure that they've got the right amount because it's not about the quantity or the quantum it's it's just about starting to think about what that life well spent looks like and when you're when you look back in your 70 and you want to think did I do a good job and for me it's just making sure that you've got those two in tandem because I think most people don't live like that they tend to look at how they're spending their money and think how on earth have we spent that much and it doesn't necessarily relate back to their initial goals and plans. Yes, yeah, so right. And I think it's that um, that old saying, isn't it? If you don't know which direction you're going, any road will do. And yeah, and, um, yeah, and I, I think so many people don't, they don't even realise that this is something that's that's worth doing, do they? I think, you know, it, it yeah. is worth spending time and, yeah. um, and actually being intentional. No, thank you for that, Barry. That's yeah. it. That's a great one. Thank you. Well, Barry, look, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting and um, I really would have a load of other things that I would would like to ask, but I'm conscious of your time. Um, Thank you for sharing with us um, your journey, a bit about your background, um, all the good stuff that's going on at Paradigm Norton, that you were a Roxy Music fan, or at least you were at one time. Um, That's uh, something we have in common. And uh, it's been great chatting, and thank you very much. No, you're very welcome, Ruth. Thanks, Barry. Bye-bye. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. So that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. I'd really appreciate it if you could take a couple of minutes of your time to go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast to subscribe, rate, and give a five-star review for Money Expresso. Apparently, this helps more people to find the podcast so we can help more people think differently about their money and their life. If you've got any thoughts, comments or questions on any of the matters discussed or life and money generally, I'd love to hear from you. You can contact me on Twitter or LinkedIn at Ruth Sturkey. Of course, the conversations with my guests are not intended as advice. My intention is to merely share our guests' money and life experiences to entertain, educate and inform you. Any form of investing involves risk and the value of your investments may go down as well as up. So please do speak with a financial planner before making any investments to make sure they're the right ones for you. Thank you.